Southern Presbyterian Worthies by John Miller Wells Daniel Baker, the Evangelist One of the strains that have gone into the making of our Southern Presbyterian Church is the English Puritan. Many of the New Englanders were Puritan Presbyterians. These afterwards became Congregationalist and modified the Congregationalism of New England in many places. A colony of Puritans from Devon, Dorset, and Somerset in England came to Massachusetts in May 1630 and founded a town which they called Dorchester. In 1695, a colony from this place, having with them Reverend Joseph Lord, their minister, sailed south in two small vessels and arriving at Charleston, South Carolina, sailed up the Ashley River and founded the town of Dorchester, near the site of the present town of Somerville. In 1752, because of the unhealthiness of the site and the lack of sufficient land, three of the colonists were sent to Liberty County, Georgia, where they secured a grant of about 32,000 acres. One of these colonists was named William Baker. The rest of the colony followed in 1754. They founded the Midway Church there, a church that probably sent out from its membership more ministers than any church in the United States. Thomas Golding, Charles Colcock Jones, and many others came into our ministry from this church. William Baker and William Baker, Jr. were both deacons in this church. On August 17, 1791, there was born to William Baker, Jr., a son whom he named Daniel. The mother died when he was an infant. The father died when he was eight years old. Of the orphan lad's childhood, we know little. An aunt, beloved, tenderly cared for him. He has left in the journal that he wrote in his later years a few memories of his early years. This tells of his days of sorrow over his father's death and gives a touching dream of his mother's coming back to him. Another, who knew him as a child, gives the picture of the little boy of eight trudging behind his two older brothers and two older sisters, carrying the heavy lunch pail in which they had carried their lunch to the school two miles away. In that journal, we have the vivid picture of the lad of 14, seated upon a bale of cotton on a cart, riding to Savannah, 35 miles away. Here he labored as a clerk in a store for three years. Then he entered the employment of a firm of cotton factors. His work in both places was satisfactory, but the country lad was learning city ways rapidly. He came to neglect prayer, to forsake the church, to break the Sabbath, to indulge in various forms of worldliness, not at once, but slowly and by degrees. Then the providences of God manifestly came upon him. He narrowly escaped shooting himself on a hunting trip. He was almost drowned while bathing in the Savannah River on the Sabbath. A serious sickness brought him to death's door. Finally, from the pulpit of the independent church, he heard Dr. Colick announce the sudden death of a very wicked companion with whom he had been playing cards only a night or two before. Memory waked. He perhaps recalled the dream of his angel mother, or another dream of waking in hell. He resumed prayer, took up again his Bible, sought peace. and that he might find it, he desired to enter the gospel ministry. But how could he enter? He was nineteen years old, had scant education, and no money. How could he overcome these difficulties? A visit from his brother brought the news that the pastor of Midway Church, having gone north and passed through Hampton, Sydney, had written back that Dr. Moses Hogue, the president of that college, 
had asked concerning any worthy young man who sought to enter the ministry and could not for the lack of means, and had offered to aid such. Baker's determination was quickly made. He secured release from his employers, obtained about $100 from his father's estate, and promptly went to Hampton, Sydney, traveling there by way of Baltimore, to which place he went on a sailing vessel. He entered Hampton, Sydney College July 1, 1811. Dr. Hogue received him into his own home. He soon became despondent because of overwork. The fear that he had committed the unpardonable sin was driven away by the truth shown to him that the very fact that he was concerned was proof positive that he had not committed that sin. And the fear that he would never make a preacher was dispelled by the thought that if he could never please a white congregation, there were a host of Negroes in the land who needed the gospel. He united with the church, a step that he had previously neglected, and took up bravely and well his work for Christ. He rapidly became a leader in Christian work in the college. A praying society was organized to work and pray for the ignorant Negroes, and some of the most godless of the students were led to Christ by him. The war with Great Britain at this time much interfered with the work of the College of Hampton-Sydney, so he determined after two years' work at Hampton-Sydney to go to Princeton to complete his course. He entered the junior class there in 1813. Religion was at a very low ebb when he entered the college. Out of 145 students, there were only six Christians. Four of them agreed, at Baker's suggestion, to meet daily for prayer. The next session, they began a weekly prayer meeting for a revival in the college. A day for prayer and fasting having been called for by President Madison, the four decided, at Baker's suggestion, to spend the day visiting from room to room, talking with the students on personal religion. This was the beginning of one of the mightiest revivals that Princeton has ever known. Eighty were deeply convicted, and more than fifty were soundly converted. Prominent ministers, noted missionaries, distinguished bishops, and college presidents were the fruit of the blessed work of grace. In 1815, he graduated with honor. Instead of entering the seminary at Princeton, as he had hoped and expected, he went to Winchester, Virginia, to teach in the female academy there and to study theology under the Reverend William Hill. His theological course was almost a joke. Mr. Hill, as soon as he had his young student safely in the harness exhorting, went off on a visit and stayed four months, leaving him in charge of his two congregations in Winchester and in Smithfield, fifteen miles distant. He had given the student Butler's Analogy as his only textbook, to which Baker himself added a thorough study of the Shorter Catechism and Bible. Religion in Winchester was in a very low state, so the young supply began active pastoral visiting and organized both a prayer meeting and Sunday school with very gratifying results. On March 28, 1816, he was married by Dr. Moses Hogue to Miss Elizabeth McRoberts of Prince Edward County. His marriage was very happy and richly blessed. At the fall meeting of Winchester Presbytery in 1816, held in Leesburg, Virginia, he was licensed to preach, though the presbytery, because of the negligence of his teacher, hesitated and was loath to license him. One thing that I never heard of elsewhere resulted from his delivery of his popular discourse. A wealthy man in the congregation attributed his conversion to that sermon. Just after his licensure, he went on to Alexandria and preached for Dr. Muir there. His preaching produced a deep impression and at once there began one of those true revivals of religion that followed his preaching all through his life. 
He was called as assistant pastor to Dr. Muir, but declined. The church soon after split because of dissensions, and he was called to the second church that grew out of the division, but prudently declined. A little later, in 1817, he was called to the pastorate of Harrisonburg and New Erection Churches in Rockingham County, Virginia, and accepted the call. Lexington Presbytery ordained him on March 5, 1818. He taught there as well as preached. Gessner Harrison and Henry Tutwiler, who afterwards became distinguished professors, were among his pupils there. His work, both as teacher and preacher, was richly blessed. In 1820, having taken a missionary tour in the western part of Virginia, the tour seemed to be so interesting and successful that I began to have a hankering after a missionary life. It was the work to which God had manifestly called him, and he could not long be contented in a settled pastorate. So though he had endeared himself much to his people, he resigned his pastorate in 1820. Lexington Presbytery sent him to the General Assembly of 1820 in Philadelphia as a commissioner. From his journal we learn that he intended to make Philadelphia his starting point, quote, not knowing precisely what ground I should occupy, end quote. He first visited Washington, D.C., and preached for several weeks for the new and struggling second church there. He then visited his wife's home in Prince Edward County, Virginia, and his own former home in Liberty County, Georgia. He received calls at about the same time from the weak and struggling Second Church, Washington, and the strong and wealthy Independent Church, Savannah. He accepted the former, and on the pittance of a salary of $600, he began his work in the nation's capital early in 1821. To eke out his meager salary, he wrote as a clerk for six hours each day in the land office, much to the detriment of his work as minister. Many distinguished men attended upon his ministry in the Little Mission Church. John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, both afterwards presidents, were pewholders in attendance. His work grew and prospered. There, quote, was a deep and quiet religious impression among the people and a large accession to the membership of the church, end quote. Still, his seven years in Washington seemed to have been the least fruitful of his whole life. The strain upon him of the double task was too great, and when at last the position in the land office was discontinued, and shortly after the call to the independent church in Savannah was renewed, he accepted the call. His work in Savannah began in 1828. The church was the largest in the city, containing a great portion of the wealth and intelligence of the city. The building cost $120,000, a large sum for that day, and was a rarely beautiful structure. The people were kind, considerate, and devout, but there seemed not much success from the highest spiritual standpoint. Then there came a turning point in his ministerial experience. On August 10, 1830, not satisfied either with myself or the state of things in the church, I took Payson's memoirs in my hand, and going out early that morning, I spent nearly the whole day in a distant graveyard, engaged in reading and fasting and prayer. I knew not that a single individual had been awakened under my preaching for six months past. That day marked an epoch in his life. The channels that had been clogged by self and sin, restraining the work of the Spirit and the life, were opened by grace. In a week there began a mighty work of grace in the proud and fashionable church of which he was pastor. Calls came to him from every direction to hold meetings. Precious revivals followed his preaching at Gillison, Gramsville, and Beaufort in South Carolina, and other points. Great crowds attended these services, and more than 200 were converted and united with the various churches. 
Family prayer was established in almost every home, and almost a score of young men sought the gospel ministry. He had made up his mind to resign his regular pastorate and enter upon evangelistic work, but how to live upon the salary of $600, which was offered him as evangelist by the Senate of South Carolina and Georgia, was a problem. Just then, the people of Beaufort, as a thank-offering for the meeting, sent him a gift of nearly $1,000. He took it as God's answer to his problem and promptly resigned the pastorate in Savannah in 1831. The next two years were spent in evangelistic work in Georgia, Florida, Alabama, and North and South Carolina. The Synod paid him no salary, but passed appropriate resolutions and recommended him to the churches in its bounds. His success, he wrote, was, quote, far beyond my most sanguine anticipations, end quote. Meetings were held in Midway, Darien, St. Mary's, Augusta, Athens, Macon, and other points in Georgia. He preached at St. Augustine, Tallahassee, Monticello, Quincy, and Mariana in Florida. He was at Montgomery and other points in Alabama. The main places where such meetings were held in South Carolina were Walterboro, Columbia, Camden, Shiraw, Winsboro, Lawrence, Newberry, Pendleton, country churches in Abbeville and Union Districts, and Nazareth Church in Spartanburg District. A few meetings were held in North Carolina, but the names of the places are not given in his journal. During these years, he would locate his family in some convenient place, go on a preaching tour of two or three months, and then return for a short rest. On one of these tours, he held 12 meetings in 12 weeks, and the average number of conversions in these meetings was 45. He averaged during the entire two years two sermons a day, and the total number of conversions was more than 2,500. In many of these meetings, the men converted were largely in the majority, and these were often the leading men in the community. One writing of one of these meetings seems to have aptly described them all. He wrote, quote, Never have I seen more deep and general interest on any occasion. All secular business seemed for the time to be laid aside and forgotten. Religion appeared the all-engrossing subject of thought and conversation. All denominations, laying aside their sectarian prejudices and peculiarities, were uniting as the heart of one man in prayer and in pointing anxious sinners to the Savior. We felt that the Spirit of God was present of a truth. While Christians were rejoicing with a joy unspeakable and full of glory, weeping sinners by scores were seen crowding to the anxious seats and inquiry meeting with the Pentecostal cry, What must we do? End quote. Early in 1833, he started to Ohio. For some reason, that is not made clear in his journal, he had desired for some time to locate there. As they traveled over land, an accident happened to one of their vehicles near Charlotte Courthouse, Virginia. While having the vehicle repaired, he accepted an invitation to preach on Sunday. Out of that service grew a meeting that was richly blessed. Invitations to conduct meetings crowded in upon him. Briary and Rough Creek churches in Prince Edward County, Clarksville and Oxford, North Carolina, and many other places were visited. I entered, he wrote, upon an unbroken series of protracted meetings in Virginia which lasted for one whole year. Thus the apparently accidental breaking of a shaft led me to hold a series of protracted meetings in which I suppose something like 1,000 persons were in the judgment of charity soundly converted, end quote. At the end of the year in Virginia, he went on to Ohio and located his family first in Lancaster and then at Springfield. Good meetings were held at both these places, but other meetings failed. Efforts to reconcile Christians at variance were in vain. Quote, we had to lament, he wrote, 
that the sins of the professed people of God had prevented richer blessings, end quote. He was most unhappy in Ohio, quote, finding myself in the midst of rabid abolitionists who poured almost unmeasured abuse upon my southern friends, I felt myself, as it were, in a nest of hornets. Although I was myself no slaveholder, yet I was no abolitionist. I verily believe that the relation of master and slave was recognized in the Bible, and that ecclesiastical bodies have no right to legislate upon the subject, end quote. So he was rejoiced to receive an invitation to carry on mission work in Kentucky, and in the autumn he moved to that state. Here he held meetings at Danville, Lexington, Shelbyville, and Frankfurt. Following the meeting at Frankfurt, he was called to the pastor of that church. This call he accepted and became the pastor in 1835. Here he remained for two years, in his own church, to the convicts in the penitentiary, to mission points in the country, he preached incessantly. During this time, Presbytery secured three months of his time for protracted meetings within the bounds of Presbytery. So successful were these meetings that when the reports came into Presbytery in the spring, one half of the additions to the churches of Presbytery were from his labors during those months. Failure of the Frankfurt Church to pay his salary regularly led him to leave that church and accept a call to Tuscaloosa, Alabama, to which place he removed on March 6, 1837. He remained at Tuscaloosa for a little over two years, and the church grew, 81 being added to the church during that time. But still, his greatest work was the evangelistic. He held meetings at Marion, Gainesville, the Old Valley Creek Church near Selma, New Orleans, Louisiana, Columbus, Mississippi, and a number of other places with rich blessing. From his journal comes this unique and interesting item, quote, We had a very pleasant synodical meeting. The preaching on the occasion also was much blessed. Hopeful converts, 24. One of them, a gentleman of high respectability, has written me an exceedingly interesting letter, closing with these words, In the hour of death, I think I shall see you, sir, as your finger ran over the precious promises in the third chapter of John. End quote. The writer is not sure, but this must have been the meeting of synod at which order was taken that Reverend Daniel Baker should do all the preaching during the meeting of synod. His attention was called by Dr. John Breckinridge to the great spiritual needs of the Republic of Texas, so he resigned his pastorate in July 1839 to go to Texas as a missionary. His support then was pledged by Tuscaloosa Presbytery. His family remained in Tuscaloosa. Before starting for Texas, he held a meeting at Wilkesbrar, Pennsylvania. Here were 60 converts, and the day he left, there were 130 inquirers. Quote, and the interest seemed to be spreading and deepening every day, end quote. When he started for Texas, he went in his usual leisurely way by stages. He held meetings at Florence, Tuscumbia, Cortland, Memphis, and Mobile, with, as he wrote, quote, the cordial approbation of the committee appointed by Presbytery to superintend and direct my movements. In each place there was a pleasing work of grace, end quote, the conversions averaging about 25 at each meeting. He went from Memphis to New Orleans by boat, and from that place to Galveston, Texas, by ship. He reached the latter place on February 26, 1840. In Texas, he visited many points, looking up the Christians and preaching wherever opportunity offered. Meetings were held at Independence, Christmas Settlement, and other places. After many hardships, he returned to New Orleans in June of the same year. We have rather meager accounts of Mr. Baker's work, and no very clear records of his movements during the next eight years of his life. 
He seems to have spent about a year in evangelistic labors in Alabama, Tennessee, and North Mississippi. Then sometime in 1841, he became pastor at Holly Springs, Mississippi. The church was small and weak, so that he reserved part of his time for those evangelistic tours in which he was so much blessed. In 1842, he made such a tour in Middle Tennessee. Meetings were held in Nashville, Pulaski, Denmark, and other towns there. An elder in the Nashville church, writing long after, said, quote, Nearly 100 were brought into the church as the fruit of this man's faithful labors. The great glory of this work of grace was its genuineness and permanent effects on the church. Its influence is felt to this day, not only in the first church in Nashville, but also through all that city, end quote. In 1843, his evangelistic tour was in East Tennessee, Knoxville, Baker's Creek, Leesburg, Kingston, Columbia, and other places were blessed by his presence. On this tour, he held a meeting at or near Washington College, and was at that time offered the presidency of the college. In 1844, his preaching tour was in Mississippi. Here, meetings were held at Vicksburg, Jackson, Brandon, Canton, Camden, Franklin, and Yazoo City and he preached at Lexington, Raymond, Richland, Benton, and other towns. This tour lasted for more than two months, and he was rained out at almost every place he preached. For this reason, the results were most meager. In 1845, his preaching tour seems to have been in Missouri, though the absence of dates in his journal makes it difficult to be certain. Here he held meetings in St. Louis and St. Charles. He received calls to both places, and desired to accept the latter, but the opposition of his people was so great that he gave up the idea of going. In 1846, very probably occurred a tour of which he speaks with much zest. Reverend Angus Johnson, a co-presbyter and a very zealous brother, wished Mr. Baker to visit certain very destitute places in Mississippi with him and do all the preaching he might require, offering to pay him $100 for the month's work. Mr. Baker accepted and went with him, quote, through canebrakes and regions of country where scarcely the form of any preacher had ever been seen before, end quote. Of the trip, he says, quote, Brother Johnson was a pretty hard master, but I did not fly my contract. I preached many sermons, and I hope many precious souls were converted, end quote. In 1847, his evangelistic trip was through the western district of Tennessee. This lasted only five weeks. On this tour, he preached 59 long sermons, besides numerous exhortations. There were 60 conversions, and twice 60 brought under awakening influences. His preaching in Holly Springs was not doing much good, he felt. Recent letters had brought before him anew what a great and promising field Texas was for missionary effort. Therefore, in June 1848, he resigned his pastoral charge, and leaving his family in Holly Springs, he started for Texas. He reached that state on June 25, landing at Port Lavaca. At once he plunged into the evangelistic work so near his heart. He held a meeting at Indian Point, formed a flourishing Sunday school, and organized a church there. Until December, he spent the intervening months in hard missionary and evangelistic labors. In the section bounded by Port Lavaca, San Antonio, Austin, and Galveston, he labored with tireless energy. In perils of Indians, and in perils of wolves and panthers, and perils of rivers, and labors many he toiled on. Churches were organized, and Sunday schools and temperance societies were started. Wherever in town or country he could gather a congregation, large or small, there he preached. He returned to Holly Springs to his family. The church at Galveston, Texas, called him as pastor, 
and he accepted the call, going there in the winter of 1849, and being joined by his family in April. At this time, he received the degree of Doctor of Divinity from Lafayette College, Easton, Pennsylvania. His labors at Galveston were blessed, but the larger mission work pressed upon him. So when, at the fall meeting of Presbytery, it was decided to establish a Presbyterian college in Texas, and he was placed on the committee to move in the matter, and the Board of Missions at the same time called him to be their general missionary in Texas, he resigned his charge and at once took up the twofold work. He gave the rest of his life to the founding of Austin College and to evangelistic work. In his evangelistic work, he went to Huntsville to hold a meeting. The meeting was a successful one, and he was very much delighted with the town. He told the citizens of the movement for a college, and they held a town meeting and subscribed $8,000 for the erection and support of a college by the Presbyterian Church at or within a mile of Huntsville, Texas. The charter was drawn and adopted by Presbytery and granted by the legislature, and the movement was really on. The charter was signed by Governor Wood on November 22, 1849. The first meeting of the trustees was held in Huntsville, April 5, 1850. Present, quote, Daniel Baker and nine others. On April 6th, he was appointed permanent general agent and at once began his work. He wanted a college mainly to secure an adequate ministry for Texas. Quote, despairing of efficient aid from the old states, I think we must raise up preachers amongst ourselves, end quote. As we are told in his life, quote, the one idea of the founders of Austin College, that for which they wept and prayed and toiled and gave of their means, was that it might be an institution wherein there might be raised up for Texas, generation after generation, a native ministry, end quote. Six tours, occupying in whole or in part as many years, did he make, collecting money for the new college. The first, in 1850, was mainly in the cities of the North and East. After leaving Houston and Galveston, he went to New Orleans, thence up the Mississippi River to Natchez and Memphis, on to Cincinnati, Philadelphia, New York, Brooklyn, Baltimore, Washington, Wilmington, North Carolina, Savannah, Augusta, and Mobile. He was gone from home nine months, preached hundreds of sermons, secured over $4,000 in money, and land that turned out to be worth over $25,000. During this tour, he held a meeting in Wilmington, North Carolina, in November 1850, that lasted eight days and was most richly blessed. In April 1851, he started upon his second tour. This time, he was gone only four months. He visited Vicksburg, Jackson, Yazoo City, Memphis, St. Louis, Clarksville, Nashville, Louisville, Frankfurt, and Baltimore. On this tour, he attended the General Assembly of 1851 at St. Louis. He collected for the college $4,000 on this trip. In February 1852, he started upon the third of these tours. He passed again through Mississippi and stopped at Canton and Columbus. He visited Tuscaloosa Presbytery at Gainesville. From there, he journeyed east to Charleston, South Carolina, where he attended the General Assembly of 1852. Liberal gifts were made after the assembly at Charleston and Columbia. Then he found the way that best suited him to raise the money. Begging, as he termed it, was becoming very distasteful. So he would go to a church, hold a week's meeting, secure a great spiritual blessing for the church in revival and conversions, then let the church officers take an offering for his college. Writing from Sumterville, South Carolina, he said, quote, How pleasant it is to follow the bent of my inclinations, and in this way not only do much good in winning souls to Christ, but in this way also more effectually promote the object of my agency. Had I been recreant to my ministerial vows and lost the minister and the agent, 
I am satisfied I should not have succeeded one-fourth part as well. The finest evangelistic work he ever did and the best collecting was under this plan. Thus he went to Sumterville, Bishopville, Mount Zion, Williamsburg, Indiantown, Midway, Mars Bluff, Darlington, Marion, and one other church in South Carolina. In the ten, there were 350 conversions in about three months' time, and the gifts to the college were over $6,000. The series of meetings closed in October 1852. In February 1853, he started upon his fourth tour for the college. He knew now where to go and how to work to get the finest results, not only in money raised, but better still in souls saved. He visited his old home, church, Midway, in Georgia. Beaufort, Winsboro, and Horeb in South Carolina, and Salisbury, Charlotte, Davidson College, Rocky River, Philadelphia, Poplar Tent, Providence, Concord, Steel Creek, Statesville, and Morganton in North Carolina. It was probably the greatest revival season that North Carolina has ever known. Eleven meetings were held in the state, and there were over 600 conversions. Three-fourths of these were men and boys, and a majority grown men. More than $6,000 came as free will offerings from those churches for the college. In April 1854, he started upon his fifth tour. He went as president-elect of the college. Rome, Dalton, and Cartersville in Georgia were blessed by his message. Anderson, Good Hope, Greenville, Upper Long Cane, Newberry, Fairview, Willington, and other places in South Carolina received outpourings of the Spirit. Eight months of tireless work, more than 700 conversions secured and of these three hundred young men, and thousands of dollars given gladly by joyful hearts to the cause he represented, marked this tour. A longer stay he made at home this time, building up the affairs of the college. And then in February 1856, he started upon his last evangelistic tour for funds. Some unnamed points in Louisiana were reached. Tuskegee and other points in Alabama heard him. Then he went on to the General Assembly in New York. Meetings were held with blessed results at Hampton Sydney College and the University of North Carolina. But the white-haired evangelist was not so strong as of yore. His voice rang clear, his step was firm, but there were certain dizzy spells that he did not understand. Back home he went, toiling for the college, making long evangelistic tours in East Texas and other parts of the state, still seeking for souls, still trying to secure more money to plan a college to train men who would seek for souls. And finally, he went to Austin to see what Texas, legislative Texas, would do for his plan. While he worked and strove there, the last sickness came. In the arms of his son, he lifted his eyes to heaven. Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commend my spirit, fell from his lips. The faithful servant was at home with the Lord. What manner of man was this who so wrought? One who knew him well said of his appearance, In person he was about the middle height of moderately full habit, with a fair complexion, very clear, intelligent blue eyes, and black hair. End quote. Guileless, artless simplicity was the chief feature of his character. Tireless energy marked his whole life. His faith never faltered. His love for his Lord was a master passion, and his love for his fellow men, especially his converts, was deep and true. Preeminently, he lives before us as the evangelist of our church. One. No other minister in our church has ever preached so widely. Every state in the South heard the gospel from his lips. In some instances, every section of the state was blessed by his preaching and presence. And his journal mention is made of 165 places at which he held meetings. And in many instances, he speaks of a tour without specifying the places he visited on that tour. 
too. No one has excelled him in the fitness of his preaching to lead souls to Jesus Christ. As a student, he wrote in his diary, quote, Oh, may I never become a cold, lifeless, sentimental preacher, but may I imitate the zeal of a Whitfield, the tenderness of a Hervey, the affection of a Baxter, and blend all with the pure, sound, evangelical principles of a Doddridge, end quote. His texts were admirably chosen. They gave great themes. Psalm 104, verse 1, the greatness of God. Daniel 5, verse 27, the sinner weighed and found wanting. Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Christ the mediator. 2 Peter 1, 1, precious faith. John 6, 44, the duty of coming to Christ. Exodus 8, 10, the danger of procrastination. Such texts and themes were potent and powerful. His sermons were prepared with great care and labor. One who reads the two volumes of his revival sermons will see that these were most carefully prepared, and he is said to have had 500 such sermons. The thought were so logical and so well fixed in his mind that he preached with ease and freedom, and usually without notes. One who heard him in the great meeting in Tallahassee wrote, quote, His sermons were prepared with great labor and care, and the manner of uttering every sentence thoroughly studied. They were not exactly committed to memory, but every thought was so well fixed and arranged in his mind that it was never omitted nor introduced out of its proper place. His sermons had consequently all the order and compactness of written discourses, with the ease and freedom of extemporary appeals, end quote. The series that he would use in a meeting were fitted to touch every feeling of the human heart. He preached the word. Of his great series of meetings in South Carolina in 1854, he wrote, Quote, if my preaching was crowned with a remarkable blessing, I believe that one reason was this, bearing in mind that the word of God and not the word of man is quick and powerful. I was a man of one book, and that book the Bible, End quote. He preached the great doctrines of our church faithfully and fearlessly. One writing of the meetings in Harmony Presbytery said, quote, I am free to say that I think the religious movement among us is due mainly to plain, frank, undisguised presentation of these great doctrines in their own solemn scripture attire, end quote. And a pastor wrote of the same series, quote, The doctrines of our church, the divine sovereignty, election, total depravity, vicarious atonement, and efficacious grace were prominently exhibited. The most melting effective discourse probably was from the words of John 6:44. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Great stillness and solemnity characterize the large assemblies, end quote. And these doctrines were preached with such love and tact that, quote, a beautiful and cordial union prevails. Presbyterians, Methodists, and Baptists commingled their tears under the droppings of a sublime Calvinistic theology, end quote. He preached supremely Christ and him crucified. How he felt as to the importance of this theme can be seen from his letters. Writing to one of his sons, a young minister, he said, quote, My son, whilst others make a parade of learning and boast of their knowledge of German literature, be it your praise that in scriptural language and with simplicity and power you preach Christ and him crucified as the world's last and only hope, end quote. And again he wrote, quote, Remember, my son, this saying of your father, that the sermon that does not distinctly present Christ in the beauty and glory of his mediatorial character is no better than a cloud without water, a casket without a jewel, a shadow without the substance, or the body without the soul. You ask me why my preaching is so much blessed. 
if it will throw any light upon the subject, I will tell you that my plan is incessantly to preach Christ and him crucified, end quote. And again, he said in a published article, quote, taking the hint from an inspired apostle, I made Jesus Christ and him crucified my constant theme, end quote. And as a result of this, in an article written just after his death, this statement was made, quote, It was a rare thing in the history of his labors for nearly 30 years past that he visited any place where he was not permitted to witness the immediate fruits of his preaching in the professed conversion of sinners, end quote. He preached with unction and mighty power. 3. The methods that he employed were sane and scriptural. He never entered a field except upon the pastor's invitation, or in the absence of a pastor, the session's invitation. While there, he carefully sought the pastor's wishes, advice, and cooperation. He let the pastor and elders adopt the methods most approved in their own congregation, having no set measures to thrust upon them. He first sought to rouse the Christians to a realization of their duty, and to see and remedy their coldness and neglect. And roused and revived, he sent them out to pray for individuals and to win them through personal work. He urged prayer upon the Christians. Sometimes he held sunrise prayer meetings, and when interest developed, he gathered the Christians together for intercessory prayer. Quote, if there was any special sin prevailing in the church, or if there were dissensions, he would aim, in a very delicate and prudent manner, to remove these obstacles in the way of the desired blessing. End quote. Early in his ministry, he gathered various groups in the section in front of the pulpit for exhortation, but later he preferred having them in the lecture room or some other room. Here he gathered the Christians, the children, the young men, the young women, the mothers, and later the unconverted. Sometimes he gathered the Christian businessmen in some convenient room downtown. To all of these classes, he brought earnest exhortations suited to them. When there came a real spiritual interest among the unconverted, he gave them invitations to come forward or kneel or stand where they were for prayer. This was sometimes in the main auditorium, but he much preferred giving such invitations in the inquiry room to which, at the close of the main service, he invited all interested Christians and unconverted to go. Here he could make clear and plain the way of life and personally lead the unsaved to Jesus Christ. He deprecated emotionalism and mere excitement and sought to keep his meetings free from all those evidences of animal excitement that have so often brought reproach on revival services. In 1835 he wrote this, quote, Generally silence and solemnity reigned in our public and social meetings. And cases of disorder and extravagance have been very rare. In about 80 revivals of religion, averaging 30 converts each, I do not suppose there were more than 8 or 10 cases of outcries, and in nearly all of them, order and stillness were immediately restored by simply repeating this beautiful passage of Scripture, The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. His methods seem in every way to have been above reproach. His supreme method was to preach a pure gospel of grace, holding up the Savior who, if the sinner would only repent and come to him in faith, would forgive all of his sins and save him with a mighty salvation. 4. He believed in personal evangelism. He was ever ready to speak in public or private the good word for Jesus and lead men to him. As a student at Hampton, Sydney, he led some of his fellows to Christ. At Princeton, with three others, on the President's fast day, he visited many of his friends and spoke, as Dr. Green wrote, privately and tenderly on the subject of religion. And so he spoke all through his ministry, now to the girls in the Winchester School, now to the soldier on the frontier, now to the eminent jurist, now to the humble slave, 
trying to lead them to Christ. 5. He believed in and used prayer as a powerful factor in evangelistic work. His was a life of prayer. As a little motherless lad of eight, he remembered going out into the cornfield and praying. When perhaps 14 years of age, under conviction, he tells how, quote, I went out into the grove and resolved that if I perished, I would perish at my Savior's feet. If I did perish, I would perish praying. I went out in great distress. I returned with great joy. In prayer, my mind experienced a sweet relief, end quote. At Hampton, Sydney, he organized a praying society with three others to pray for the students and to pray with and for the Negroes near the college. At Princeton, he organized a similar group, of which Dr. Green, writing to the trustees of the college about the great revival there, said, quote, The few pious youth who were members of college before the revival were happily instrumental in promoting it. They had, for more than a year, been earnestly engaged in prayer for this event, end quote. In the hour of death, he lifted his eyes to heaven and exclaimed in the serene exercise of a perfect faith, Lord Jesus, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And in the life of sixty years, between the child praying in the cornfield and the saint praying on his deathbed, lay a life of continued prayer. He sought to lead the Christians to pray in every meeting he held. He led the inquirer to the mercy seat, and he tried to impress upon the young convert the necessity of prayer to victory. 6. He was blessed in being used of God in most wonderful revivals, in which God's people were richly blessed and very many souls were saved. No church was ever the same after a visit from him, and more than 20,000 souls were hopefully converted under his preaching. Time fails to tell the full story of even the most wonderful of these revivals. He was mainly responsible, humanly speaking, for the great revival at Princeton, from which came 30 ministers, many of them distinguished, two prominent bishops of the Episcopal Church, one president of a college, and other famous workers and missionaries. Through him came the great meeting in the independent church, Savannah, that melted the ice of that great church, added more than 100 to his membership, and 150 to other churches in the city, and completely transformed the life of that church. He preached at Beaufort, South Carolina, and several hundred joined the Episcopal and Baptist churches. Two bishops and ten other ministers entered the ministry of the Episcopal Church from that meeting. Six lawyers became ministers. The parish church had to have its seating capacity doubled. Family prayer was established in almost every home in the town. And for years, the moral and religious tone of the whole community was lifted. He preached at Providence Church in North Carolina, and 3,000 gathered in the grove on Sunday to hear him, and more than 100 converts were received into the church. From one end of our church to the other, this flaming evangelist passed, holding up the blood-stained cross, only eternity will measure his work. Quote, they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. End quote.